It's Sunday, August 21st, 1988, in Delano, California, a small farming community 150 miles north of Los Angeles. Inside an immense white tent set up to shield the blistering overhead sun, a haggard and rail-thin 61-year-old Mexican-American man with salt-and-pepper hair attempts to make his way to a single chair resting inside a sea of spectators. He is far too weak to stand on his own, so it takes two of his sons to prop him up and help him on his short journey to the chair. There's a crowd of thousands in attendance, including press from around the globe, as well as many celebrities like Jesse Jackson, actors Martin Sheen, Robert Blake, and Edward James Olmos, along with Ethel Kennedy, the widow of Bobby Kennedy and her children. The event's all part of a Thanksgiving Day Mass that celebrates the end of a 36-day water-only fast. A fast undertaken to help promote the abandonment of dangerous pesticides used by California grape growers, which are currently poisoning migrant farm workers and their children. The man at the center of this protest, and the one refusing to give his body any food for over a month, is labor activist Cesar Chavez. Sitting next to Caesar is his wife, Helen, a stout but reserved woman who has been at his side 24-7 throughout the ordeal. Externally, Helen shows nothing but support. But internally, she's worried whether her husband's aging body can take yet another fast. That's right, this isn't Caesar's first water-only fast to help facilitate change for farm workers. It's his third The previous two were shorter, sure, lasting a still astounding 24 and 25 days, but no less taxing on his body and stressful for those close to him helping him in his quest. But somehow Helen quells all those internal fears and remains focused on the events happening around her. To help Caesar fight off the extreme heat of the day, she fans him with a manila folder and provides him with sips of water from a plastic tumbler. A priest approaches, a piece of bread in hand. He offers it to Caesar, who accepts the sacramental offering. In Catholicism, this offering is known as the bread of life, so the designation has never been more true than it is today, as it is likely saving the life of a man who has not eaten in 36 days. As her husband accepts the bread, Helen can finally relax. Well, sort of. She knows that this may be the end of this fight, but there will surely be more to come. That's because for Helen and Caesar, today is just another day in their unified struggle to create change, all watched over by God. It's just another brick in a long road that is their amazing love story. A love story that is full of pain and anguish, along with poverty and racism, but also plenty of love, caring, and devotion. And it begins and ends with this selfless couple who not only dedicate their time, their minds, and their bodies to a cause, but also pieces of their souls. So
I'm Kevin. I've been happily married and in love with my wife for going on 10 years now. And I love telling real life stories. So I decided to combine these two worlds and create something new that will celebrate love stories like mine. A podcast which highlights what I think are the most moving, most fascinating, and most memorable love stories of all time. Stories that not only teach us about love, but also about ourselves. In this episode, we'll peel back the onion on the powerful and unbreakable union between labor and civil rights activists, Caesar and Helen Chavez. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give it a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. And don't forget to like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. Today's episode is brought to you by amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. And if you're interested in creating your own great love story, schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast for special discounts. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the world's greatest real-life love stories. Cesar Chavez has a legacy as a tireless labor leader, community organizer, civil rights activist, champion of nonviolent social change, and some might even say is a true American hero. He made it his life's work to go out and garner much-needed rights for the men and women who tirelessly and thanklessly work in the fields to bring us our fruits and vegetables. And although his wife Helen is the lesser known of the two. Her role in this lifelong fight to make the lives of others better was no less important. There's a famous saying that behind every great man is a great woman. And in the case of Cesar Chavez, this is true gospel. In life, Cesar and Helen were married before God. But it may be more accurate to say they were married before a cause. A cause to get basic rights and a better quality of life for America's marginalized farm workers through its first organized labor union. So this love story isn't just about Cesar and Helen Chavez. It's also about their love for a group of hardworking people who just want what we all want, to be treated with respect and live a happy, healthy, productive life. And what's even more amazing about this love story you're about to hear is that the two people at the center of it grew up in extreme poverty, never graduated high school, and spent a lifetime fighting against a powerful, sometimes ruthless, and often racist adversary who wanted nothing more than to see them fail. Our story begins with the birth of Cesar Estrada Chavez on March 31st, 1927 in Yuma, Arizona. He is one of five children born into a family of farmers. But in fact, it's in the back of a local grocery store his father recently purchased that this future agricultural labor leader enters this world. But as a young boy, his father not only loses the grocery store, but also the small plot of farmland he inherited from his grandfather, which had been in their family since the 1880s. 
both losses coming at the hands of unscrupulous land barons and gluttonous local banks. These losses are important moments in Caesar's life, as they would mark the beginning of his mistrust and aversion for the power brokers of American industry and agriculture. For a time, he and his four siblings live in a tiny adobe home with no electricity, no running water, and an outhouse hundreds of yards away. But in 1938, 11-year-old Caesar and his family leave Arizona and head to the agricultural farmlands of California in search of a better life. Caesar's entrance into the world of migrant agricultural work has begun. He and his siblings would now spend much of their time away from school so they can head out into the fields and earn extra money for the family, sometimes making as little as eight cents an hour. And for those of you not too familiar with the migrant farm worker lifestyle, for much of the early 20th century, and even today, most of our fruits, vegetables, and other agricultural goods like cotton are picked by farm workers who are hired only when the crops are ready to be planted or harvested. And since in any given year, you can't exactly set your watch to when hiring in any particular job begins, how long the job will be, or how many workers are needed, it requires a flexible migratory lifestyle that allows workers to move from farm to farm or city to city or even state to state to find work. The nomadic existence of migrant farm workers often means that there's no definitive family home to speak of as they stay where the work is. Sometimes home is a camp set up by a grower or even sharing a rented rundown shack or apartment with other migrant workers. To give you an idea just how much moving around is done to get these jobs, Caesar and one of his brothers, once just for the fun of it, counted the number of schools the two had attended as kids. The number they came up with? 37. Yes, 37 schools. The reason the number isn't higher than 37 is because after an unexpected auto injury to his father in 1942, Caesar decides to forego high school altogether and instead dedicate his time to work and helping keep his family from going hungry. He travels all over California, laboring in the fields, orchards, and vineyards, where he's continually exposed to the hardships and injustices of farm worker life that would help define his life's work. One month, he might be harvesting vegetables, such as cabbage, cauliflower, carrots, or broccoli. The next, fruits like melons, cherries, apricots, or grapes. Then one day in 1943, at the age of 15, while inside a malt shop, Caesar's life will change forever when he starts up a conversation with an attractive teenager with the flowers in her hair. I want to take a quick moment and speak to some of you struggling online daters out there. If you're tired of attracting commitment phobes, casual hookups, and well, online dating duds, I have the person to help you. And that's Amy Lettingham at amythedatingcoach.com. Amy is a master certified dating and relationship coach who will personally support you through her unrivaled dating profile makeover session. Amy will help design your dating profile by helping you pick the most eye-catching photos, 
and writing the most appealing and authentic profile copy that will only attract the best matches for you. I promise you, there are singles out there who want the same things you do. But to find them, your profile must convey the very best you while at the same time stand out from the rest. Basically, Amy specializes in helping you do just that by creating killer dating profiles that have the ability to add great love stories into life stories like yours. So visit Amy at amythedatingcoach.com and sign up for your dating makeover session today. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Helen Fabula is born on January 21st, 1928 in Brawley, California, but raised in Delano. She's one of seven children born to parents who are both migrant workers. Although in his previous life, Helen's father was a Mexican revolutionary colonel who once rode with the famed Mexican general, Pancho Villa. Because her family is so poor, for much of her childhood, Helen lives in an old horse stable converted into rooms. Like Caesar, to help garner the family much needed additional income, at various times during her youth, Helen works in the agricultural fields of California. And when her father dies at the age of 11, things only get worse for her and her family. Since now her mother is forced to raise Helen and her siblings all on her own. By her sophomore year, Helen leaves high school to work full time and help support the family. Though outwardly very traditional and shy, in private, Helen is by no means a meek person. Many people would later use the word fierce to describe her inner spirit. After their initial meeting, Caesar begins a courtship of the pretty 15-year-old. Much of this comes in the form of Caesar making frequent trips to the market, where Helen sometimes works as a cashier. World War II is in full swing at this point, so Helen occasionally saves the extremely hard-to-come-by ration cigarettes for her new suitor. The courtship is interrupted in 1946, when Caesar volunteers for the Navy and spends the next two years away while on active duty. But sometimes absence does make the heart grow fonder. And that is exactly what happens here. As when Caesar returns to Delano in 1948, the romance blossoms. Caesar captures Helen's heart by way of mostly inexpensive rendezvous, like going on moonlit walks or taking her to a movie at the local movie theater. On occasion, he even takes her dancing, donning his favorite zoot suit. One friend later described their dancing escapades this way. Caesar moves slow and cool, while Helen spins around like a top, putting the so-called jitter in her bug. Caesar eventually proposes to Helen, culminating in a drive up to Reno, Nevada, where on October 22, 1948, they get married in a civil ceremony alongside Caesar's sister and fiance. This is followed by a church wedding in San Jose, California, and then a two-week honeymoon, touring the old Catholic missions peppered along the California roadways from Sonoma down to San Diego. Then it's back to Delano, to a migratory life working in the fields. 
despite the fact that Caesar and thousands of men and women like him work in an industry that puts food on people's tables, putting food on the Chavez's table is not so easy. Because even though at one point over a two-year period, Caesar works every single day in the fields, including Christmas, the wage of just a few dollars a day barely allows them to get by. As for their accommodations, I'll let Caesar himself describe that. We had a one-room shack without electricity or running water. It was bitterly cold. And we only had one of those little kerosene camping stoves, which we kept turned on day and night. We were miserable. Despite having little in the form of monetary wealth, Caesar and Helen set out to make sure their familiar wealth was bountiful. Their first blessing arrives in the form of son Fernando in 1949. Over the next 11 years, the Chavez family would add seven more children, making Helen's role as a wife, caregiver, and co-provider all the more impressive. Their financial luck finally changes dramatically in 1952, when Caesar receives a decent-paying job with a California civil rights organization called the CSO, short for the Community Service Organization. Over the next decade, Caesar, and sometimes Helen, works to organize and improve the Mexican-American community by spearheading voter registration drives and fighting racial and economic discrimination. The job offers a steady paycheck, and at one point, the family is even living a middle-class life in a nice neighborhood in Los Angeles. Although they're living in relative comfort and doing good works, Caesar's real dream is to improve the lives of migrant workers in a much larger, more sustainable way by forming an actual farm workers' labor union. But before he can uproot his family, and transition them from the stability of their current lifestyle to one full of uncertainty and sacrifice, Caesar sits down with his wife and the mother of his children to get her thoughts. In the book Caesar Chavez, Autobiography of La Causa, Helen reflects on this conversation. Caesar did discuss it and say that it would be a lot of work and a lot of sacrifice because we wouldn't have any income coming in. But it didn't worry me. It didn't frighten me. I never had any doubts that he would succeed. So Caesar and Helen abandoned the steady paycheck of a CSO executive director, and with only about $1,000 of life savings in the bank, leave Los Angeles and move the family back to Delano to start the union. So on September 30th, 1962, inside an abandoned Fresno theater, the National Farm Workers Association, or as it is known today, the United Farm Workers, is born. Their union is dedicated to the rights of men and women who work in the fields each day by getting them a minimum wage, insurance, safer work conditions, and collective bargaining. The union's eventual motto or rallying cry Si se puede, Spanish for yes we can, promotes the kind of positivity and confidence that both Caesar and Helen have in their hearts and want to instill in their members. 
It's a phrase that's so meaningful and evocative of ideas of justice, change, and collective power of the forgotten that one Barack Hussein Obama adopts the Yes We Can slogan for his 2008 presidential campaign. By all accounts, Caesar and Helen's marriage is built on their faith, mutual respect, and a willingness to sacrifice for one another and their cause. But in those early years, this cause, or in Spanish known as La Causa, completely upends their lives and the lives of their children. As Caesar must build the union from the ground up by traveling up and down California to recruit paying members. With Caesar gone for long stretches at a time, and with little to no money coming in, Helen, and even sometimes the older children, would work in the fields to help pay the bills. Helen would later say that the beginning of the union was the roughest time they had. Their foundation's website describes this time in their lives like this. When Caesar would sometimes return home to Delano, California, after days on the road, feeling alone and demoralized, not having recruited anyone into the new union. She would encourage him saying, Caesar, you have to have faith in God that what you're doing is right. He would feel better and go out and try again. It's this kind of support and encouragement that becomes the bedrock for their relationship, despite the endless hardships. Although Caesar is driving the so-called ship, it is Helen who continues to give it its fuel. On the home front, even when money gets tight, one thing Caesar could always count on when he returns from the road is a stable home life and an amazing home-cooked meal. Helen, who couldn't cook at all when they first got married, had within just a few years taught herself to be a masterful chef who would cook wonderful meals for Caesar the kids, hungry farm workers, and anyone else who happens to be in or around the Chavez home at mealtime. Over time, Caesar and Helen's partnership and sheer determination to cultivate their cause into something meaningful begins to take traction. The handful of members Caesar has managed to recruit into the union early on begins to grow. Soon, he has hundreds of paying members, and by 1966, the hundreds become over a thousand. But even though they have the numbers to finally get a seat at the table, their main adversary, the growers and multinational corporations who cut the checks, aren't going to just roll over and change things because some union organizer says so. No. It will take countless boycotts, strikes, marches, protests, and of course, some water-only fasts. Each of these acts of non-cooperation are always non-aggressive, non-violent acts modeled after the teachings of leaders like Mahatma Gandhi, St. Francis of Assisi, and Martin Luther King Jr. Even this peaceful approach doesn't keep Caesar and his union members from getting beaten up, arrested, or even killed, despite their First Amendment right to protest peacefully. 
Helen herself is also arrested for protesting multiple times, forcing this mother of eight to be handcuffed and sent to jail in a clear message by the powers that be to stand down. This type of self-sacrifice shows just how much Helen is in, how she isn't just some passive contributor to her husband's cause. She is his partner in crime, or since many of these arrests were unwarranted at best, maybe it's more accurate to say his partner in no crime at all. These arrests aren't the only ways that show just how much Caesar and Helen are willing to sacrifice for the greater good. They also endure bomb threats from racist adversaries prompting around-the-clock security at their home. There's constant harassment of their children at school by teachers and students. Plus the scarcity that comes from living a lifetime of voluntary poverty. If you don't believe someone as famous and powerful as Cesar Chavez is poor, just know that he and Helen, like many union staffers, might have their food and housing paid for, but their salary? As little as $5 a week. Despite their mutual goal of creating positive change for the migrant farmers and their families, Helen has an arrangement with Caesar that they both upheld throughout their life together. She lets her husband become an international public figure, and she gets to keep her privacy. So while Caesar is out in the world, actively growing the union membership by doing interviews with local and national media, recruiting government officials as well as international dignitaries and celebrities, Helen most often shows her support in a more behind-the-scenes manner. In her lifetime, she would do very few interviews and is rarely seen on camera. To give you an idea of just how much of a behind-the-scenes character Helen is, to research this podcast, I watched a 100-minute documentary about his life called Caesar's Last Fast. And Helen's name is not mentioned in it one time. We barely even see her. Whether this was by design to continue her desire for anonymity or not, the love and dedication she shows Caesar, the family, and the cause clearly warrants some type of recognition. In addition to being Caesar's most trusted advisor, Helen organizes the migrant workers' wives and daughters for strikes and marches, cooks meals for hundreds then thousands of union farm workers who come to Delano for the cause, and most impressively, works for over 20 years as the administrator of the union's credit union, a credit union that started with just $3,000 and within a few years would be loaning out tens of millions of dollars to union farm workers and their families. Caesar is the face of the union and their cause, no question. But without his partnership with Helen, the journey to help others achieve equality and basic human rights would have been marred with many more struggles or maybe never happened at all. Sadly, their marriage and partnership comes to an end after 44 years on April 23rd 1993, when Caesar dies of natural causes in his sleep at the age of 66. Over 30,000 mourners from all walks of life and economic classes join a procession behind his casket for three miles to take one final march for the man who marched 
for so many. The next year, on September 8, 1994, Cesar Chavez is presented posthumously with the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Bill Clinton. The award is of course accepted by the woman who helped make it all possible, the love of his life, Helen Chavez. For another three decades, until her passing in 2016, at the age of 88, Helen continues what she and her husband started by championing for social and economic improvements for the lives of those less fortunate. And it's true that on the surface, Caesar and Helen's is not the most romantic love story of all time. But love stories are not always defined by great romance or endless passion. They're also defined by love, respect, and the quality of time spent together on this earth. And within the confines of this definition, the Chavez's relationship shines. Plus, the fact is, their marriage is a union of two, built to create a union of many, thus making it one of the more compelling and important love stories of our time. Caesar and Helen are now buried next to each other inside the memorial garden of the Caesar E. Chavez National Monument near Bakersfield, fitting for a couple who in love and in life were side by side every step of the way. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. And remember, if you like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and hit the subscribe button. Or like us on our World's Greatest Love Stories Facebook page. It really does help. And if you're a smart, successful single who's looking to find your forever relationship and want to create your own great love story, go to amythedatingcoach.com. That's A-M-I-E, thedatingcoach.com. Amy's programs help you break unhealthy dating beliefs, attitudes, and patterns through live virtual group coaching, private coaching, video lessons, and breakthrough exercises. Schedule a free relationship readiness review with Amy today. Mention this podcast and you'll receive special discounts on her various programs. See you next time on the world's greatest real life love stories. <laughs>